0: Martin Luther once said that if he knew Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow, today he would plant a tree. And this is very likely different from the way that many of us might answer that question. If if we knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, most people tend to say something like, like they'd spend all their money, that they want the last check to bounce. That they would do something they never felt free to do before. And essentially, I mean, what we're after is we we'd try to do something irresponsible, right? So I think the most gen- uh, general answer that we get to that. Luther, in contrast, would plant a tree. One of the most mundane tasks that focuses on the long term rather than the immediate and his point was that we can't be distracted from what God gives us to do in this time, right now, no matter how much of it we think we might have left. We need better perspective. Do, do we look at the time we have on this earth as simply... One of passing the time best we can until the end of life or Jesus' return? Or do we look at the time we have here as an opportunity to abide in faithfulness each day, no matter how many days we might have or think we might have? What does all that have to do with 1 Thessalonians 4, though? So we remember, it's been a few weeks, we remember that Paul is writing this letter to give words of hope. new Christians who were coming under oppression. In the first three chapters, Paul told this story of his concern for the Thessalonian church and how he had deep need personally to make sure they were persevering in faith. And that story ended with Timothy being sent and returning to Paul with good news about the way that the church was endeavoring In the faith. In those chapters, repeated some themes, the themes of election and the imitation of godly examples and the return of Christ. And that last theme, the return of Christ, becomes even more important in our last chapters of this book, as Paul exhorted the Thessalonians in doctrine and practice. Now, let's think about that for just a second. Paul already highlighted throughout, in multiple occasions, the impending return of Christ. It's importance and how big a deal this was going to be. Remember back, perhaps, one example to chapter 2, how he described that day of Christ's return in terms of a royal visitation, the monarch coming to check on his people. And in this case, restore them, vindicate them, and rescue them from their enemies. And there, he encouraged the Thessalonians as they waited for our Lord's return, which will set all things right. He encouraged them with that truth. They await an event, or awaited, an event that provides them with hope. Drawing the event there. And then, just like today, as soon as we start talking about Christ coming, God's people have lots of questions which Paul anticipated and addressed some of them in chapters 4 and 5. As we're slowly getting into, as we broach these first 12 verses, and then we'll get really into it in the next passages. One of those anticipated issues that Paul wanted to preemptively address, though, is that many of us would not be as sanctified as Luther. And what we would do when we feel the eminence of Christ's return pressing in on us. Some of us think that the time now doesn't matter if Jesus is about to return in vengeance upon those who oppress His people. So, before Paul preemptively answers some questions about Christ's coming, in the passages starting just after the one we think about tonight, he headed off some potential practical misapplications. Well, he's going to address Doctrinal errors or potential misunderstandings, he actually first addressed some practical, potential practical misunderstandings. And so I I need to review just a little bit longer tonight than usual because as you noticed from your order and service, this sermon is part two. So what did we think about last time? The first potential misapplication leading up to Christ's return was sexual immorality. We thought about this issue last time. We were in 1 Thessalonians. The principle we considered, so the foundational issue we considered was about how people are prone to try to discern the will of God for their lives, but we actually are told what it is, we don't have to try to feel our way to find God's will. We're told First Thessalonians four verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, holiness is God's will for your life. So, that, so there's no need to ask super urgent questions to search to discern God's will for you. He's told you, and when we come to wishing for specifics, Paul also tells us about that. Verses 1-2. to Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as... Listen here, right here in this bit. That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing... That you do so more and more and zone in again. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul, what Paul did here was point Christians to the apostles' teaching to understand God's will as they pursue holiness. And we also should follow the same principle of go to the apostolic teaching which we find in Scripture... Which, of course, also directs us to consider the apostolic teaching. The New Testament points us to consider the moral law still upping and binding from the Old Testament. And even those principles within the guardrails of God's will as our sanctification tell us all that God reveals as His will for our lives. So... We're looking again at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-12. Because while there is one principle that I've just tried to review and underscore, one principle of knowing that God's will for us is our holiness, Paul gave two applications of that principle. And so we have to attend to that second application in verses 9-12, to which focuses on Christian work and life together. So, whereas the first application was about the need for holiness in sexuality, the second application addresses our need for holiness in how we relate socially with other people, especially Christians, as we'll see. You can, you can. Okay, let me let me point this out. I think you can already see. Why this issue would be something Paul had to address in light of the second coming, right? I mean, may, maybe you're studying, because many of us would not think like Luther plant a tree if Christ is coming back. Instead, thinking if Jesus is returning really soon, why would I work? The world is about to end after all. Why would I need a paycheck? Certainly why would I want to spend those last days doing something hard? And Paul, Wanted to circumvent that way of thinking. So the main point here is holiness entails proper conduct towards our Christian community and a devoted work ethic. Holiness entails proper conduct towards our Christian community and a devoted work ethic. And we'll think about this in three points. The requirement of growth. The rules of growth and the results of growth. And so first, the requirement of growth. So we, we've reviewed from verses one to three, our starting principle that God fundamentally wills our sanctification, our growth in, in holiness. We see that in really clear terms, as Paul wrote, you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, and then underscore that you do so more and more. So God's will is an increase in holiness. As the Thessalonians received from the apostles the concrete content of that holiness, what we need to strive after, so we also must, must turn to Scripture to discern the concrete expressions of God's will for our lives. We must not seek to invent God's will for us by feeling in our heart what God might want for us. We discern foundations of conduct in the Bible. And then we use Christian wisdom gathered from Scripture and godly counsel about what's best to do. Read verses 9-12 to with me as we delve into that second application of this principle. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, notice that, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, okay, that first line, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I. I think that has the resonance of when parents might say to their children, I know I don't have to tell you to stay out of the cookie jar. Kind of biscuit jar, sorry. So the kids do know this is the rule, but still need a reminder to keep it. So Paul was reminding them that they have received divine commands when the apostles were with them about what brotherly love looks like. And as we learn elsewhere in Scripture, God has even written that holy law on the new hearts He gives to believers. And that's, that's why He talks about them being taught by God. I don't think this is an outright rebuke of something they're doing. I mean you notice that Paul affirmed the Thessalonians were showing this love to Christians throughout Macedonia. The exhortation here is is not to correct their course of action but to increase it, to deepen and strengthen it. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And do you notice throughout this passage I hope, I tried to stress it as a as I read do you see the word re- repetition of that principle to grow in holiness the the emphasis lies throughout here on that little phrase more and more it's about growing and developing that and so we again again we find that there's no plateau in our holiness, in our sanctification, there's always more room to develop in our godly character. Even though we don't see here the explicit statement of that recurring print theme of, of imitating godly examples, it's impossible to miss the connection that we should draw to it here. The, so he's sufficiently stressed the imitation part throughout earlier chapters. And here, he's focusing on the godly aspect of what he wants them to do. And this need for growth, for the increase in holiness here, is one of the features that binds this application about Christian life together with the the previous section in verses 1-8. to So, the requirement of growth is that fundamental premise of the Christian life that we must be endeavoring to improve in our walk with God. We can never be satisfied with the level of sanctification we achieve. Satisfied in in a I've made it sense. We can be happy that we're sanctified. That's, I'm not trying to exclude that. We should be happy. We're not, though, as, as emphasized when we looked at verses 1 to 8, striving just to avoid sin. It's not avoidance of sin we're after. We do want to avoid it, but it's not simply that. We're pursuing purity. We don't, we don't just want to find out where sin is and then not go over that line. We want to go this way, after purity. That's what we need to be ingraining in our thinking. The requirement of growth is that we must keep running after deeper holiness as we walk with Christ. It brings us to our second point, the rules of growth. So thus far, we've established the need to pursue deeper godliness because God's will for our lives is the increase of our holiness and we also reaffirmed that we must turn to scripture for the concrete and practical standards of what it means to grow in godliness so that's what we've established thus far and in this point we're going to consider the the points the the rules that paul laid out for christian conduct in verse 11 as the second application of the principle that God's will for us is, is our sanctification. Okay, so, verse 11 includes these um, three instructions to help us describe godliness as we seek God's will. So, so look in at verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands... So these are the, the three exhortations that Paul gave in relation to brotherly love. So this whole paragraph is couched under the issue of brotherly love. I mean, these are really fascinating, aren't they? Think about those. The, I mean, the rhetoric... I mean, live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands. So, I mean, the rhetoric we hear a lot... Within evangelical circles, is to be radical. And evangelical leaders want over-the-top Christianity on fire, as they say. And there's room for that sort of talk, so that we don't become stale. I mean, we don't we don't want that. But I sort of wonder. I mean, were were those who are arguing for this radical Christianity whatever that is, whatever they mean by that. Were they reflecting on a text like this when they composed that rhetoric? Live quietly, mind your own business, and do your own work. And that doesn't really seem to be all that magnificent. That that's pretty on the ground and not very fancy. I Practical takeaway here is that the foundations of the Christian life are really pretty simple. Now, that's not to say that they're easy to do. And at times, they may in fact, and are, difficult to do. But they're not complex. It's not that we struggle to understand, even if we struggle to do. That, however, I mean, I think that point is a little bit of why we, we might need to think deeply about the radical rhetoric. And so, my question is, what do they want us to do? I mean, that's a, I mean, in some ways, I think, yeah, we, we should be rootedly Christian, really committed to this. But what do you want from me? What's different about that than what the rest of us must be doing that, isn't radical. Concrete, And I think what's going on here is concrete biblical direction like this gets replaced with the rhetoric. And my contention, as, as I'm guessing that most of you will agree, is that actually we should be satisfied with the things that Scripture gives us to do. So first, if we think about this verse... We're to live quietly. We're not meant to cause... We're not supposed to be the ones who cause stirs in the public sphere. We're not supposed to be people inciting riots. We accomplish good ends through other ways. So we see the same principle in 1 Timothy 2, 1-3. to First of all then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So Paul was consistent. In insisting on being peaceful. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans twelve, verse eighteen. I think, I think this peacefulness is essentially what corresponds to that second point of brotherly love here that we mind our own affairs. So so this included in some sense listen in some sense being normal and ordinary and living godly lives. The So here's where I want to circle back to that radical rhetoric, because the radical thing, the really shocking, controversial thing in our day and age, is to have this focus on keeping God's commandments. His explicit biblical instructions rather than seeking the new and profound will of God for our lives. I mean, just imagine, when, really, I mean, okay, everybody, I want to ask you this question in earnest. Imagine if every Christian put significant effort into doing the basic things the Bible tells us to do. What if we put concerted effort into keeping the Ten Commandments and doing everything without grumbling or complaining. Philippians 2.14 I mean, if we as global Christians worked on those, if we made great strides in those areas, the world would be flipped upside down again, I think. And then the last little item there, the last rule. Lastly, we are... Meant to work with our own hands. Now, okay, so some take this to, to mean that Christians are supposed to be manual laborers, laborers, placing the emphasis on hands. You gotta have a job that uses your hands. I think that, I mean that, it's well and good for Christians to do manual labor. I wouldn't oppose that, but, We can be sure, though, that Paul's emphasis here was not on hands, as in do manual labor, but on your hands, your own hands. So his point that you need to do your own work. That we shouldn't be lazy. And that we take our own vocations and tasks seriously and strive to accomplish. So don't, don't farm out your responsibilities to other people. Do it yourself. God's called you to this, given you this, and you ought to do it. I think that in that point, right there, the, the do your own job links most directly with that theme that has come and is coming again of the return of Christ. So Paul is sort of saying, just because I'm about to tell you some details about Jesus Christ's return, don't stop tending to those things that God has called you to do here and now. Just because I'm about to tell you about it doesn't mean you know how long that return will take. So keep on doing things God gives you to do. Okay, so I need to think about a a possible objection right here. Some people might be thinking, maybe not, maybe somebody's thinking that in downplaying the radical in favor of growing in godliness and, and going to work, I've neglected proper Christian responsibility to do important things like evangelism. But I just want to point out one. that I've already cited Paul's instructions to be praying for everyone. That That was a conscious decision early on. We need to be praying for everyone, which means he listed that as part of the quiet and godly life to be thinking about people's salvation. So evangelism is one of the biblical instructions you are called to do, and do it in ordinary ways. We'll think more about that in just just a moment. But for now, the point is that the rules of growth, the necessary guidelines for our sanctification, God's will for our lives, those rules are the express instructions found in Scripture, the principles that holy Word of God outlines for us. We don't make it up. We listen to God. That's the point. And that brings us to our, our third point, the results of growth. So first we we thought about how it's necessary to grow in in our sanctification and to seek specific instructions for how to develop our holiness from Scripture. And then we looked at the three rules for growth set out in verse 11, and now we are going to consider verse 12 and the intended results of pursuing sanctification in the area of brotherly love. And so, if you will, read verse 12 with me. So that... You may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So, so that little phrase there, so that indicates purpose. It's a purpose cause and a purpose cause indicates the desired results of previous actions. It's described. So verse 12 indicates The reason that we are to work at those three rules from verse 11 about sanctification and that reason is that we walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this purpose to have a good reputation and be independent is the intended results of keeping and Attending to brotherly love, so in other words, if we're, if we are careful in those three rules in ordinary circumstances, we'll be above reproach with people not in the church, and would be able to take care of ourselves, not necessarily in individual in an individualistic sense but take care of ourselves as the church. I think that's important. We take care of our own. We've been thinking about deacons this weekend and thinking about how we care for the material needs of our church. And so the real takeaway is that we look after our people so that the church doesn't have to depend on the world for stability. So, so simply put, and this is just John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we tend these principles of brotherly love, it displays before the world that we're God's people. So we, we need to keep plugging away at the things God has given us to do as we considered in the last point. But but we do so in hopes that being faithful in those ordinary tasks, which includes praying for lost people and reaching out to them, but so being faithful to those ordinary tasks and to each other will make an impression on the world outside. And that is, of course, part of Our platform for doing that evangelism. When people see that we're a different kind of people. No, part of, it's not, we, you still need to tell people the gospel. But this helps form a platform for it. It helps us as we reach out to others when we have been good stewards of the roles that God has given us to play in our family and at work. The results of growth, therefore, are that we show the world that Christ has changed us and equipped us for sanctification. Now, the thing is, that holiness, you know, the change in us for holiness is not the starting point. It should be pretty clear that, and I hope we're gonna make it clear now if it's not, but I, I really want it to be and trust that it has been, that our growth in holiness is not the foundation of, but the purpose of the Christian life. So that, that growth in holiness rests on something much, much deeper. Our pursuit of what Christ will work in us is grounded in what Christ has already worked for us. So, let's just be really clear. For any of you who are not Christians, this is the thing to hear. Okay, all the stuff we've talked about, Last time, sexual immorality here, being good stewards of our vocations. You can't keep the rules. They're not going to earn you into heaven. They won't warrant or cause God's favor. Christians can't keep the rules in that way. We are all filthy you wretched sinners. And so, unbeliever, you can work all you want, as much as you like, at trying to keep God's commands, and it will do you no good in itself. We have to trust in Jesus Christ, who died for us, because we've broken God's law. And so the point is, Christians aren't good people. We're forgiven people. And when we see the depths of what it means that the Son of God came down from heaven in human nature, lived a perfect life to earn heaven for us, and died on the cross to pay the death penalty that we owe, as violators of God's law, when we see the depths of that, we are driven, when we take hold of the the precious work of Christ by faith and know our rescue from hell, when we take hold of that, we are driven by gratitude to pursue the life of holiness. And that's how that works. You can't reverse those orders. And so let's go to Christ now, trusting Him for forgiveness and also asking Him for holiness.